every year. Jewish calendar doesn't work quite the same way. So if we wanted to split hairs and be really difficult, we could say it's not accurate, but there's probably bigger things to argue about than that. But uh, many churches will celebrate Pentecost Sunday today. But as we prepare for Foundation Conference next weekend, and I, I believe and I feel strongly in the Spirit of the Lord that He wants to pour out His Spirit, that He wants to fill people with the Holy Ghost throughout our conference weekend. We have a number of people that are seeking the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and I, I want us to come believing. And if you already have the Holy Ghost, I want you to bring your faith to the house of the Lord, mix it with the Word of God, and believe what God wants to do. And so in preparation, perhaps, for the next weekend, I'm going to be teaching, preaching, probably slip out of one and into the other a little bit as I go along, about the Holy Ghost. About the Holy Ghost. Amen. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Genesis, the first few chapters of Genesis cover some incredible periods of history. There's really not a lot of detail given to us, which leaves it open to some degree of speculation. But what we do know is that the Spirit of God moved in creation as God spoke, particularly in chapter 1, and that as the power of God's Word came forth, planets, moons, stars, our sun, were all hung in the heavens, all spinning in precise orbits perfectly, not roughly or haphazardly, but perfectly positioned to maintain the balance that is required. It has always amazed me, and I have said it before and will no doubt continue to say it, how that God has hung the earth, the perfect distance from the sun, for life to thrive. The perfect distance so that we would get just enough of the sun, not too much that we would be fried, and not too far away that we would freeze but that he hung us that perfect distance from the sun. Not only did he do that, but he set up a structured system in our galaxy, at least in the ones that we're aware of, a structured system to keep everything going and functioning from creation until now. I don't know about you, but there's very little, if anything, in my life that I have ever made and walked away and come back years later and it's still functioning as if nothing ever happened. Most of the things I make collapse before the day is out. But when he spoke and he created everything, and, and I do not have anywhere near enough science to get technical, and that's good because that's not my job this morning. But he put everything in the balance. Everything that he put in creation affects every other piece. And yet the mass of planets, the distance of planets, the orbits, the, all of that stuff was done with the degree of precision that without being unkind would be absolute foolishness to believe happened by accident. You know, I read something the other day that I thought was very good. It said that atheism is only temporary. They're going to find out. Amen. Amen. And then later in chapter 1 of Genesis... We are told that God made man in his image. And that's a mind-blowing concept all by itself. But in Genesis 2 and 7 that we just read, we read the first record of the Spirit of God interacting with man. 
of God interacting with humanity, where it talks of how God breathed. And as God, as much as we can comprehend it, exhaled into his image creature, life for Adam on every level began to happen simultaneously. That mud man that God made out of the dust of the ground, organs began to function, heart, lungs, blood flowing backwards and forwards through arteries and veins, the the nervous system, high-speed communication happening, impulses from brain to body and however all that works, I don't understand. His eyes began to capture images that his brain would then need to interpret. His ears heard sounds that also required understanding. All of that happened when God breathed into Adam. Touch, smell, and I'm pretty sure taste came along pretty quickly and all became active and a part of this incredible being that was mankind. The pinnacle of this masterpiece was not the physical wonder that Adam was because Adam was made flawless and sinless and so he had none of our ailments, none of our shortcomings, none of our bad backs or issues with our various body parts or personality flaws. Adam had none of that. He was perfection. He was perfection. And yet the, the, the cherry on the top, if I can use that expression, was not the wonder of his creation, but was that God had made a creature that his spirit would live in, that his spirit would reside in, that he would have the spirit of his creator, and that spirit would flow through him. And his sinless condition meant that he was able to interact with God himself as a perfect image and reflection of his creator. But we know the story. We know it all came crashing down when Adam and Eve sinned and exactly how Adam felt when he considered his before and after because he had a before and after like nobody else. But when he reflected upon pre-sin and post-fall, exactly how he processed all of that, I do not begin to understand, but because sin brings death, that living soul that Adam had before the fall was now in a state of spiritual death. There was a disconnect. There was a break in a relationship. And I, I don't profess to be wise enough to understand how all of that worked and what Adam felt, but there was separation between God and man. And as Genesis 3 closes out with Adam and Eve being expelled from the garden, the remaining more than 1,000 chapters of the Bible are written as a story of how God would make a way for mankind to be restored. We need to always remember the message and the story of redemption is God's first priority in the Word of God. He gave you one chapter of creation because, quite frankly, how he did that, he's not worried about us understanding that. What he wants us to understand is that he is our maker, that he is our saviour, and that if we will listen to him, he is our redeemer. Amen. So much prophecy in the Old Testament speaks to us of a Messiah, of a Savior, of one who would come, be the Lamb that would ultimately redeem us from our sins. Isaiah tells us that he would be a child born of a virgin, but that he would also be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. What incredible prophecies Isaiah was able to pen. And these two images, the child and the lamb, the sacrifice, is what much of the world thinks about when they consider Christianity. At Christmas time, again, probably not the right date, but hey, whatever. At Christmas time, we pause to remember his birth. 
We pause to acknowledge that he was born, that God was manifest in the flesh some 2,000 years ago. We, we sing, we call them carols. They're pretty much just hymns. That's if, I mean, the real ones, not jingle bells. But we, we pause to sing what we call Christmas carols that talk about the birth of the child, that talk about how he came in flesh, how the angels proclaimed it, how, how incredible it was and what a, what a moment it was in the history of mankind. At Christmas time, we dress our children up like shepherds. The unlucky ones get to be the sheep. Some get to be the wise men. And we have an end-of-year children's ministry event that we all enjoy I think every parent's got photos somewhere of when their kids were in the Sunday school end-of-year children's event. We have some of Matthew when he was a little bored that the little rope he had around his angel's cloak he took off and was trying to tie up one of the other kids on the platform. His mother trying to get his attention and tell him off, but he conveniently wasn't looking in her direction. Sorry, Matthew, that's what you get for being the pastor's son. But we, we think about Christmas. The world acknowledges Jesus at Christmas. And then a few months later, we get to Easter. Some faiths, some churches have special services where they hold mass on those dates. And it's the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus is remembered in a variety of ways, some more biblical than others. In a simple sense, the broader idea of Christianity, that story is told as a straight line from the manger to the cross. That's the story. That's the basic summary for so many people. And I, I want to emphasize, underline, and repeat this morning that we should always, always, always be thankful for his coming, for his death. That's why we have communion. That's why we sing so many songs that talk about the blood and the power of the blood. We're talking about Calvary. We're talking about what was accomplished, what was achieved there. And may we never, ever lose our gratitude. May we never, ever lose our appreciation. May we continue to worship Him, continue to thank Him, continue to honor and magnify His name for His sacrifice as long as we have breath. But as is so often the way with humanity and what they decide are the important points, was the cross the main focus of why Jesus came? Yes, He came to die. And if we were going to be saved, there was no other way. If there was, he would have taken it. He prayed in that garden. He said, Lord, if it's possible, if, there, if there's a, a different choice here, he said, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. We know that Calvary was a horrific necessity. But in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, it tells us to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. In his humanity, in his flesh, the cross was front and center for Jesus. In his humanity, he knew that was his destination. But in his divinity, because remember he was fully God and fully man, in his divinity, in that spirit, that was resident within him. Pentecost was what it was all about. Pentecost was what it was all about. The incarnation was miraculous. It was incredible. It can be talked about for eternity and never fully be comprehended by the human mind. The crucifixion 
was graphically horrible and beautiful at the same time. But at Pentecost, men's souls would come alive again. When the Spirit of God would be poured out, some of what happened back in Genesis chapter 2 would be restored for the first time in 2,000 years. More than two, sorry, in thousands of years. You can argue about that time as well if you want to. Yes, Pentecost would not be exactly the same as Genesis chapter 2 because we have a sinful nature still. But God began to bring mankind back to its original design purpose, to know him and to be known by him. John 14 and 8, Jesus said, I will not leave you comfortless, but I will come to you. Matthew 28 and 20, the Lord said, teaching them to observe all things. Whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. We know he wasn't with them physically for very much longer after that. It was a matter of days, and he ascended back up into heaven. But when he said he would be with us always, he was talking about the promise of the Father. He was talking about the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. You see, the cross of Calvary is the how, but the Pentecost is the why. The cross was necessary, but the reason he came was for Pentecost. Jesus does not draw a line from Bethlehem to Calvary and stop there. Jesus drew a line from Bethlehem to Pentecost. Calvary was a necessary necessary stop on the journey, but Pentecost was the joy that was set before him. Pentecost was the reason that he came. Too often we stop at the cross and it matters So help me, the cross matters. But Pentecost is why he came. In Matthew chapter 16, a passage that as apostolics we love because of its revelation of who Jesus is, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, Who do men say that I am? And they say, Well, Lord, some say you're Elijah, come back. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some think you're a prophet. They're not really sure who you are. And then he said, but who do you say that I am? In Matthew 16 and 16, Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus said to Peter, you have had this incredible, God-given revelation that I am in fact the anointed body of the living God. Amen. And he said, because of this revelation, he said, I'm going to give you some keys, Peter. Not the old man at the big rusty iron gate of heaven. But he said, I'm going to give you some keys and you're going to be involved in opening the door to the kingdom of heaven. Wow. That doesn't happen every day of the week. What an experience. Peter, I imagine, is feeling pretty awesome. You know, it's like when you go home from an awesome service, you're almost kind of like half floating. You know, you leave the house of God. Peter didn't have the Holy Ghost yet, but he was feeling a bit of that. He's having divine revelations. 
And Jesus has given him a special task. You know, we have to remember the disciples were ordinary people. They had, you know, you read there's a bit of rivalry going on. I'm sure when Peter heard those words, he's thinking, did you hear that, John? Because when you read between the lines, there's a little bit of something going on between Peter and John. Because in John's gospel, when he records that Peter and John ran to the tomb together, he deliberately records that he got there first. I'm faster than Peter. He's a bit slow. And I beat him to the tomb. And in the very last chapter of John's gospel, remember John got to write these things, Jesus is talking to Peter and he's telling Peter what's going to happen in his future. And Peter says, but what's going to happen to him? John's writing this. Because Jesus basically says to Peter, mind your own business, worry about yourself. So John's like, I'm happy to write that down. So there's a little bit of, little bit of that going on. And so he's kind of like, Peter's feeling pretty good. You hear that, John? I'm getting the keys. He didn't have a clue what that meant, but it sounded good. And then not long after that, in the same chapter, Jesus starts to tell them about the things that he's going to face. Chapter 21 of Matthew 16. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem, suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes, you know, those that were supposed to be caretakers of the word of God and be killed, be raised again the third day. And Peter, with a head full of steam, as he seemed to get so very easily, took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he, being Jesus, turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. I don't know exactly how long it was from chapter 19, sorry, verse 19 down to verse 23, but I promise you, Peter's bubble was burst. Jesus was saying, Peter, I can't give you those keys until those things come to pass. Peter didn't understand that yet. Jesus was saying, I understand that you care, Peter, but right now you're thinking carnally. Right now you're actually more in line with the devil than with me at the moment. I promise you in his humanity, Jesus would have preferred to go straight to Pentecost. But Calvary was necessary. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 says, You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria, and under the uttermost part of the earth. tells us that there are three stages of the birth of the church after they receive the Holy Ghost. The Jews... Jerusalem and Judea, the Samaritans or the half-Jews, and the uttermost part of the earth. That's the Gentiles. That's you and me. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Ghost is poured out for the first time on the day of Pentecost. That's why we call ourselves a Pentecostal church. Peter stands up. The others all standing with him. He preaches the message of Acts chapter 2. He tells them those famous words, you must repent. You must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the promise, the gift of the Holy Ghost. Who preached that? Jesus, Peter, the dude with the keys. First door, Jerusalem and Judea. We get to Acts chapter 8. Philip has gone down to Samaria. Philip's preaching the gospel in Samaria, and the whole city is repenting. They're all turning to the Lord. They're getting baptized in the name of Jesus, just like they did in chapter 2. 
But the scripture says, but the Holy Ghost had fallen on none of them yet. What did they do? They sent to Jerusalem. I don't know how they got the message there, text, email, I don't know. They sent a message back to the mother church and Peter and John, doesn't say they raced this time because they got the Holy Ghost now, so they're much nicer people. (laughs) Peter and John go down to Samaria, lay hands on the new believers in Samaria and they begin to receive the Holy Ghost just like they did in chapter 2. Why? Because Peter had the keys. God was using him to start things off. It doesn't mean that Philip couldn't pray for people to get the Holy Ghost, but it was a fulfillment of what Jesus said. We get to chapter 10. Peter gets invited to go to Cornelius' house. He's, this is way out of his comfort zone, going to a Gentile's house, but he comes in and he figures, well, Lord, you sent me here. Let's have church. So Peter begins to preach to Cornelius. And because Cornelius is a Roman and he wasn't raised in church and he doesn't know all proper church etiquette, he and his family decide to get the Holy Ghost while Peter's still preaching. Very rude. The preacher hasn't even made his closing remarks or called for a musician. And these people are getting filled with the Holy Ghost. Who was there again? It was Peter. God gave him the keys. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. All of that was only possible because of the cross. All of that was only possible because of the cross. But Peter, that's why I came. I came for Pentecost. For Pentecost in Jerusalem, for Pentecost in Samaria, and for Pentecost in Caesarea. That's why I came. Amen. I want to remind you and stir you up if I can this morning that if you believe that Jesus died for your sins, you need to believe just as strongly that he wants to fill you with the Holy Ghost. Because the two concepts are inseparable. They are a part of the same purpose and the same promise. Amen. When the angel appeared to Mary and said she was going to have a son and that she was to call his name Jesus, the angel said that he would save his people from their sins. Too often when we think about that statement, we stop at the cross. He would save his people from their sins. He's the Lamb of God, come to take away the sin of the world. He's going to Calvary. Yes, 100% yes, but there's a comma there, not a full stop. We've got to keep going. We need to keep going to Pentecost because Pentecost was why he came. People repenting, people being baptized in Jesus' name, people being filled with the Holy Ghost is why Jesus came. The cross is not the end of the process. When you are filled with the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues, that spiritual life that flooded Adam in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 now floods your soul as well. That's why he came. Amen. We cannot stop at the cross. We must go all the way. The tragedy, and I'll use that word deliberately, the tragedy of much of modern Christianity is that people are brought to the cross and told that's it. Repent, believe Jesus died for you, say some form of a repentance prayer, sometimes called a sinner's prayer, and they're told that's it. And yes, 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 you must come to Calvary. 
You cannot bypass the cross. Without the cross, none of this is effective. You must come to the cross, but by the word of God, you must keep going. Romans chapter 6 tells us that after we're buried with him in baptism, we are supposed to walk in newness of life. We're supposed to have new life. What does that mean? Romans 8, 9 to 11, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. I didn't write it. Paul did. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if, that's a variable. It's not automatic. If the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell or live in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or make alive your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. You get new life spiritually now, but it's also that power that is there that when that trumpet sounds and when that voice that John heard in Revelation chapter 4 says, come up hither, that is that spirit, that is resurrection power. That is the life we're supposed to walk in. Amen. We're going to cover just reasonably quickly if I can. Some of the things that the Holy Ghost will do in your life. Maybe to remind some of us, maybe to encourage some of us to seek after it. The Bible tells us that the Spirit of God teaches us. 1 Corinthians 2, starting at verse 9, But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. But God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? We know natural things through natural processes. Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. So naturally, we cannot know the things of God because we've only got a natural spirit. But now, verse 12, we have received. There's a progression here. Not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God. That spirit that knows the things of God, that's the spirit we receive. That we might know the things that are freely given unto us of or by God. Which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. You're going to measure something, you've got to use the right implement. You can't measure things that are spiritual with natural measuring implements. Spiritual with spiritual. Amen. How does the Holy Ghost teach us? It helps us understand His Word. When you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, it will change the way you read the Word of God. It doesn't, you know, there's no mysterious ancient texts that come floating off the page. But the Spirit of God adds understanding, brings things to our attention, helps us to understand what God is saying to us and what God is wanting to do through us. God can reveal Himself to us by the Holy Ghost. Very important, something we stress often, that we understand that the Holy Ghost and the Word of God are not separate from each other. You can't have Word people and Spirit people. That doesn't exist. Amen. Jesus said that His words are Spirit and they are life. And we need the Word and we need the Spirit of God together as a part of our spiritual diet. One does not contradict the other. They're not two sides of some weird celestial split personality. 
but the Word of God and the Spirit of God are together because they are both God Himself. God is a Spirit and that Spirit speaks and creates. Amen. The Holy Ghost gives us power. We've already read Acts 1 and 8. Thank God for the power of the Holy Ghost. Thank God for the power to overcome sin. When temptation comes, to be able to say no. Sometimes we don't think that's a big deal. That's a big deal. If you've ever been addicted to something, you've ever been imprisoned to a particular behavior that you cannot change yourself, to have the power to be able to say no when temptation comes is incredible. To overcome sin and to be a witness to others by the life that is overcoming. Not so that people think you're awesome, but so that people think your God's awesome. The Holy Ghost imparts the love of God, Romans 5 and 5. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. I don't even want to imagine. This is going to be a bit rude, I'm sorry. I don't even want to imagine what us meeting together every week would be like without the Holy Ghost. Just think about how we'd all get on every week if we were meeting together and we didn't have the Holy Ghost. Different cultures, different education levels, different thinking patterns. Yeah, I'm out of here, I'm gone. But the Spirit of God in us causes His love to be shed abroad. That means others benefit from His love. A passage in Romans chapter 5 speaks about standing through tribulation. It speaks about having confidence in God because we feel His love through the Holy Ghost. But it is also the Spirit of God that enables us to love one another and to love the lost. Because if you're honest with yourself, there's sometimes you're not as lovable as other times. All of us. Hard to accept, I know. The Holy Ghost bears witness to our relationship with God. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children. When you have the Holy Ghost, you know there's something going on between you and God. It's a confirmation that we are His children. That word adoption there from, comes from a Greek word which means the placing of a son. When you are born again of water and spirit, we are placed in his family. Sons and daughters, it's not male specific. Amen. The Holy Ghost will resurrect the believer. We've already covered that in Romans chapter 8 and 11. If the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us, he will quicken, make alive our mortal bodies. And when Jesus returns... Like the old song says, there ain't no grave going to hold my body down. Amen. It doesn't matter if we're alive or we're dead. When he sounds that trumpet and he calls us home, if we're filled with his spirit, we're going to be with Jesus. Amen. The Holy Ghost strengthens the believer. Ephesians 3 and 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Strength to stand against temptation. Strength to endure trials. Strength to be a witness. Strength to serve as a part of his church. Philippians tells us that I can do all things through Christ, which does what? He strengthens me. How does that happen? Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I think that's First John 4 and 4. The Holy Ghost helps us to pray. Romans 8 and 26. Likewise, the Spirit 
also helpeth our infirmities. Somebody say, I got infirmities. For we know not how we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. God is involved in our prayer. Sometimes He guides us when we pray in language we understand. Sometimes He flows through us and we speak in other tongues by the Holy Ghost because He knows exactly what needs to be going on. The Holy Ghost seals us. Ephesians 1 and 13, In whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Three times in the New Testament, the Scripture talks to us about being sealed by the Holy Ghost. Now, I think most of us understand, but a seal, particularly in the ancient world, was used in important communication, particularly at official level. Kings and rulers and leaders, they would often take, they'd fold up that whatever their writing material was, put a big old blob of hot wax on the, on the join, and either they would have a stamp or a, or a signet ring and they would make a mark on that wax that was identifying that they had written it and they had sealed it. And like yogurt, if the seal was broken, you weren't supposed to eat it. It meant somebody had been messing with it. There are three things that that seal indicates or communicates. One is approval. Two is ownership. And three is protection. And when we are sealed with the Holy Ghost, all three of those apply to our lives. We have the approval of God upon our relationship with Him. We are His children. He owns us. You know, we don't like that language, but I, I think it's a good deal to belong to God. Amen. And protection, He protects us. Ephesians 5 and 18. I always use this verse when we're talking about the Holy Ghost. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. The parallel here is between being intoxicated with alcohol and being filled with the Spirit. One is a carnal, sinful practice that produces unpleasant changes in behavior and often leads to regrettable consequences. The other is a supernatural experience that also produces a change in behavior because when we are filled with the Holy Ghost, our behavior should become more like Him and less like our unsaved selves. Amen. Stand with me if you would this morning. I want to challenge us today as we prepare for Foundation Conference. If you have the Holy Ghost, I want to challenge you to be stirred up in the Holy Ghost. Let's not just go, oh yeah, I got the Holy Ghost 27 years ago. Let's, let's stir that up. Stir, you know, the Scripture talks about stirring up the gift. God, refresh us in the Spirit. Remind us of how awesome it is to be filled with the Holy Ghost. And if you are yet to receive the Holy Ghost, I want to challenge you this week to intentionally seek God's face this week in prayer, to join us in prayer and fasting on Wednesday, and if need be, adjust your thinking to understand that Pentecost is why He came. That's why He came. Amen. If you believe that He died for you, you need to just as much believe that He wants to live in you. Amen. He went from... Bethlehem to Calvary to Pentecost. That was his purpose. Let's lift our hands and worship him this morning. Lord Jesus, we worship you today, Lord God.